The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In this blessing, then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 4. In the previous passage, Paul has continued to develop all of the major themes of this letter. First, that righteousness or justification comes by faith and not by works. Second, that all people, regardless of ethnicity or background, receive righteousness in this exact same manner. And third, that this gospel Paul preaches, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, will not cause him or any who believe in it to be ashamed, but that it will bring about the obedience of faith. In fact, faith in Christ is the only thing which will produce genuine obedience in those who believe. Following the law cannot remove the fatal sin problem that we and every human being has. If anyone at all is to be justified before a holy God, it will have to happen in an altogether different way, and that way is through God-given faith. Now, in order to confirm these arguments, Paul turns to the example of Abraham, a patriarch of Israel and held in the highest regard amongst the Jewish community. And so, uh, our text this morning is actually the illustration for last week's sermon. So, last week we we shared Paul's initial points, this week we're going to share Paul's illustration, his sermon illustration, but Romans being so dense and uh, a rich theological treasure we're moving slowly in order to comprehend and appreciate the Word of God. Nobody likes when I preach for three hours. I'm not sure why. The the justification of Abraham is used by Paul to defend the gospel he preached. So he uses this Old Testament illustration to show that it is consistent with God's previous acts in history and to emphasize the continuity between the way God has acted in the case of Abraham and the way He acts now with us in accordance with Paul's gospel. 
And so this case of Abraham provides this excellent example of one who was justified by faith, uh, but that is not the only or even the primary intention here. Remember that Paul is concerned about conflict in the Roman church. This is one of the main reasons for this letter. Conflict in the Roman church along ethnic and cultural dividing lines between Jew and Gentile. And so his main purpose is to show that God makes no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles as far as salvation is concerned. And so now Paul defends his thesis that Gentiles can join faithful Jews as true Israel and children of Abraham. Any notion that the people of God should be confined to one group, to just the Jews, is rejected here. And he appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures to defend this gospel in the light of possible Jewish objections, pointing to the experiences of Abraham and also of David, King David, in order to support his case. So let's begin Romans 4, 1 to 3. What what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This first part of verse 1 is better translated... What then shall we say was discovered or learned by Abraham? What did he gain in the sense of what did he come to understand? Abraham did not know that when he believed, God would graciously credit it to him as righteousness. But he discovered this amazing theological truth. He experienced the grace of God as a result of his taking God at his word. And so Paul reminds his readers that he himself is a Jew and a biological descendant of Abraham, calling him our forefather. And then he, he subtly diminishes this uh, by this distinction by adding according to the flesh. So what is he, what is he saying here? Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Paul is already intimating what will be made clear as he continues that not all ethnic Jews are true descendants of Abraham. In other words, Romans 9, 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel because not all walk in Abraham's faith. You see, the Jews took great pride in having Abraham as their father, as both a biological ancestor and the founder of their nation, but for many, Abraham is only their forefather according to the flesh, which implicitly raises the question, is Abraham your ancestor according to the Spirit? Is he really your spiritual father? You can ask this of yourselves this morning, is Abraham my spiritual father? The implication being that mere physical descent from Abraham is insufficient. Jesus made this clear with His response to His Jewish opponents in John 8, 38 to 39, and of course, I have to go to uh, verse 44 as well for the punchline, John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. This is Jesus speaking. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. They answered Him, Abraham is our Father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. 
And then verse 44a, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. As for Abraham, verse 2, if justification came through something that he did, then he would have something to boast about before God. Now, don't get me wrong, Abraham's faith was obviously expressed in obedience and in personal transformation towards righteousness. But it, it becomes clear that faith was the foundation for these other elements. Now here, Paul wades into contentious waters because his Jewish count contemporaries considered Abraham to be a clear example of a person who was justified by his works, particularly by his obedience to God and being willing to offer up his son Isaac. And so there's many examples in Jewish literature of them saying, look how Abraham was justified by his works. So Paul is saying something quite different here. Among several other examples uh, in contemporary Jewish literature, 1 Maccabees 2.52 says, was not Abraham found faithful in testing and it was counted to him as righteousness? Which sounds actually quite a lot like James 2.21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? But James continues in a way that shows that he is actually in complete agreement with Paul. James 2.22-23, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So James is not in agreement with these other Jewish writers. He's in agreement with Paul, but he points out, uh, James is trying to point out that faith must produce works. The faith without works is dead. Both are saying that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul will also contend that those who have received the Spirit will do good works, just like James, and that one must do such works to receive eternal life. They both agree that works are necessary evidence for justification. But Paul's point here is that Abraham didn't perform any of the works necessary to be considered righteous and to boast before God, and that he was declared righteous by God before any such work followed. And so verse 5 even implicitly places Abraham among the ungodly. Prior to his call, Abraham was an ungodly idolater worshiping false gods in Joshua 24, 2. And then early on in Abraham's portrayal in Genesis, it's far from heroic. Do you remember if you've been with us through Genesis recently, even after God promised him salvation and blessing and God called him out from a pagan people and said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make a great nation of you. And even after God assured him again and again that he would do this for him, Abraham looked out for his own self-interest. Twice he throws his wife under the bus entirely because he doesn't trust God, and soon he and Sarai resorted to Hagar as a surrogate mother in Genesis 16.2. Sure, Abraham's faith and obedience are much greater in his later years after seeing the faithfulness of God throughout his long life, but it is his initial somewhat rudimentary faith which is sufficient to be reckoned righteous by God, Genesis 15.6. And he believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first time in the Scriptures that the word believe is found, and it is connected to righteousness. It's not that God looked down upon Abraham and said, look, there's, there's a righteous man. I will justify him on the basis of his obvious righteousness. Rather, because Abraham believed, God counted him as righteous. If we had to wait until we were perfectly righteous before we could be considered righteous, be justified, none of us would make it. All of us have some degree of sin clinging to us, even now, as long as we live in this world, we will have some sort of sin that we are dealing with. So God's view of Abraham was not shaped by Abraham's obedience to the law of Moses. The law of Moses had not even been given yet. And so this is a powerful argument that Paul's making here. No Jew could ever claim that Abraham was justified by keeping Israel's law. More than that, the Scripture itself tells us that Abraham's righteousness was not based on works of any kind, but was credited to him by faith. And so the point being made here by Paul is that people were justified in the Old Testament in precisely the same way as in the New Testament. They were justified by faith. Old Testament saints had to trust God for salvation in a future Redeemer who was to come, whose work was typified by the sacrificial system in the Old Testament worship. And so they looked to the future to see what would come, trusting in what God would bring, just as we in the New Testament age look backwards to see what has already been accomplished. But it is believing the Word of God that is crucial in both Testaments. There's only one way to salvation. This faith is not merely a belief in God or even a general belief in God's reliability, but specifically belief in the promises God made to him. Abraham's faith had objective content as well as being a subjective trust in God. That is, he didn't just relatively trust in God, like God will work things out, but he believed the specific things that God told him, and this was counted to him as righteousness. It's altogether a different thing to believe that God exists. It's another thing for us to believe what God says, to trust God, to put our confidence in Him. This is what saving or justifying faith is, not merely believing in God, but trusting in God for our redemption, trusting His promise. It's quite easy for us to see areas in our lives even now where we are failing to trust His promise, when we have anxiety and worry, when we seek our own, we we have self-interest. That only comes out of failing to see and believe the goodness of God, believe His promise. To walk in pride or greed or any other thing is actually in some way a failure to believe the good news of the gospel. And so we need this this morning. We're not just going about the technicalities of how Abraham was saved, but this is a life-giving word for us. When someone believes in Christ, that is, entrust themselves to Him and to His promises, not only is that a good thing, not only is that peace to our lives, not only is that defeating of our pride and anxiety and greed and self-interest and defeating all sorts of sins in us, but that belief According to that belief, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. 
That is, the merit of Jesus Christ is credited to our account so that when God looks at us, a person who has trusted in Christ, He sees the unrighteous person covered with the righteousness of Christ. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's vital to understand that Abraham's faith did not earn him right standing before God. Some, some have changed faith around so that faith is kind of like that righteous work that everyone has to do, as though we produce faith within ourselves or we choose faith, and then, and then we have earned then God's saving work. Abraham did not earn his right standing. It was granted as a gift from God, as Paul makes clear with this analogy. You know, when we work, we expect to be paid. Uh, we have earned our wages but that is not how it works with sanctification. Oh, sorry, justification. My bad. There, there's nothing anyone can do to earn their salvation, their justification, to be made righteous in God's eyes, because as Paul's already made infinitely clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so without God's grace, which is received by faith, we are utterly lost, every one of us. And so this also means that if God is going to justify anyone he will have to justify the ungodly. You know, if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if no one is righteous, not even one, then if anyone is going to be saved, it's going to have to be one of these terrible people like you and me. And this is exactly what God does. There's no people anywhere. There's no people of God for Him to call to Himself. So He has to create for Himself a people. Beginning with Abraham, right? All the nations of the world had turned against God. All had sought after false gods and worshipped them rather than the one true God. They had rebelled against God. And so God says, I'm going to make a new people. I'm just going to make a, make a brand new one. And so also He does with each one of us individually. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. And so God is only saving ungodly people. No one is good enough to merit God's approval. But trusting God must not be regarded as a work performed by the righteous. When God justifies the wicked, He is like an employer who gives wages who do, to those who do no work. We desperately need the righteousness of Christ to be credited to our account or counted as ours. Romans 2.6 says that God will render to each one according to his works. And yet, as we've been repeating, Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. That's really bad news. God will render to each one according to their works, and no one is righteous, no, not one. We need to be credited with the righteousness of Christ because we are incapable of gaining the required righteousness on our own. Now, part of the point of Romans 2.6 is that those who have been credited with righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ will live righteous lives, just as Abraham was transformed by his faith. But here, the accounting language highlights the fact that righteousness is not something that Abraham possessed prior to acting in faith. Instead, when Abraham believed that God could do the impossible thing he was promising, God responded by marking his account righteous. 
Now, following the Jewish principle of establishing the truth from the mouth of two witnesses, Paul appeals to the words of David in Psalm 32.1 to confirm his argument, Romans 4, 6-8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, by bringing in this second witness, Paul confirms that the righteousness he has been talking about is not earned or achieved by the individual, but the righteousness of Christ credited or imputed to them through faith. Linked here, you see, as it is to forgiveness, it is a declared righteousness that cannot be talking about our getting better, our being transformed. This, of course, we've, we've been talking about is the work that faith does. Faith brings us to obedience, but now we're talking about a specific kind of righteousness, the righteousness by which someone is saved. God will render to each one according to their works. So we cannot be saved without righteousness, but we lack the requisite righteousness ourselves. So we need a declared or what theologians call sometimes a forensic righteousness, that is based not on our own good works or our righteousness, but on the perfect righteousness of Christ and our relationship with Him through faith. Now, both the examples of Abraham and David are key here. Abraham received righteousness, and it was not like someone who had received uh, what they had worked towards, because that would not be called a gift. That would be called wages, Abraham did not, was not counted righteous according to his wages, but according to grace, the gift of God. Now, David celebrates the blessed state of being one who is a sinner, but God will cover those sins and not count his sins against him. Blessed are those who law, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. If we are each to be judged according to our works... We are all utterly hopeless. But instead, those whose hope is in the Lord, they are blessed. This is what David had experienced, Psalm 32, 1-2, when God chose not to count his sin against him. He confessed his sin, and God had forgiven him, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is what we get to celebrate here this morning. We're not here to celebrate our goodness. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what good Christians we are. We came to church this morning. We're not here to say, look at the group that we're a part of. Look, look how clean we look. You know, all of us look like most of us showered and, and put on some... We're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk about and celebrate the goodness of God to people who utterly did not deserve it. How a righteous God then could refrain from counting one's sin against them is something we, that we looked at closely last week. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this week because that's largely what we talked about last week. But Romans 3.25, justice was executed upon Jesus Christ, whom God uh, put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called sometimes the great exchange Jesus received in himself, our due. When we talk about sowing and reaping, Jesus has reaped everything that I have sown and will sow. And I get to reap what Jesus has sown. This is the great exchange. The psalm begins by portraying a person weighed down by a a sense of sin. Who who has this this knowledge, this conviction that they are, are a loser. They're wicked despite their best attempts. They cannot come worthily but who receives forgiveness from God and is assured that his sin will never be counted against him again. And this without any works on the part of that person that might enable him to boast. When faith is credited to people as righteousness, it is as an undeserved gift of God. All that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that needs to be forgiven. This rules out boasting in our own righteousness. And we think, okay, yeah, of course. But this continues to be an insidious and prevalent sin amongst professing believers. You know, we we don't have to string together too many good days where we start to think, I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty great. Other people should maybe be a little bit more like me. Someone knows me over there. It, right? We, we, we're so prone to this. We, we need this reminder. It's not just somebody here who's an unbeliever who needs to know that they can be saved by God's grace, but it's Christians who need to remember continually that we did nothing of ourselves. We brought only the necessity. That's it. That's what we served up. Sinful creatures. It boasts, to boast in, in such a thing is, is utter foolishness. This this is a prevalent sin among believers. Remember, Paul has a pastoral concern for real problems taking place in the Roman church. He's not merely formulating abstract theological propositions, right? It's not, Paul doesn't write Romans, even though it's this dense theological treatise, that's not why Paul has written it. It's not, here's a theology textbook, I called it Romans, because I used Roman numerals. No, there was a church in trouble, a church that had divisions, and those divisions came from the fact that they were not rightly seeing themselves in light of God's grace. And by failing to see themselves in light of God's grace, they were no longer seeing each other correctly as well. And so there's one answer for the the major problems in the Roman church and in our church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, rightly understood. Faith, sorry, this is a real answer to pride, right? We we struggle with pride. If we're honest and if we're humble enough to admit it, we we struggle with pride. And anyone who is not humble enough to admit it, sorry that you're doing so poorly. This isn't just to like rub our, our nose in it, but to uplift our, our gratitude. We, we lack genuine celebration oftentimes as a church. We lack the true joy of salvation. 
And it's because we have not rightly understood how amazing, how gracious it was. That faith will also produce a life of obedience is another massive theme in Romans, but that's not the concern here at this point. He, he does talk a lot about that faith produces works, just like James. But that's not the point here. Here we are to see that Abraham's righteousness, David's righteousness, and any other human righteousness comes not through obedience, but is graciously granted as God's gift through faith. So that when I even do one good thing, I don't own that. I don't take that as mine. I don't take credit for that. It's like, wow, look at what amazing thing God did with this wicked sinner. Look how God stewarded this wicked sinner to do that one good thing that was totally impossible for them to do otherwise. And so he gets all the credit. We get all the reward. He gets all the credit. Where verses 1 to 8 handled the how of justification, now verses 9 to 12 answer the question of who. Who will walk in the faith of Abraham and be justified in this manner? Having described the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works and whose sins He forgives, now Paul proceeds to make clear that this blessedness is available to all people. Romans 4, 9 to 12 Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that the righteous would be counted, so this, that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now remember, we talked about Abraham being a spiritual father. People sometimes speak in terms of both ethnic and spiritual ancestry. You know, someone may not be our our blood relative, but if we follow in their path, in the culture they created, or the nation they founded, or in the way that they do things, we would say that they are the, the father, you know, we have the father of modern medicine and the father of modern psychiatry, different people who, who founded something new. More than a blood relation, spiritual ancestors are those in whose ways we walk, in the same character or quality. Those who have faith like Abraham did are his spiritual heirs more than those who simply practice the outward seal of circumcision. And some Jewish teachers appealed to their biological connection to Abraham as a uniquely Jewish benefit, available, uh, sorry, unavailable to Gentile converts. But for Paul, only a spiritual ancestry that is, to follow in the faith and obedience of Abraham, has any value whatsoever. And to prove this, he relies on a chronological argument. I love a logical argument. This is a fantastic argument. So, follow with me. 
Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. That means that circumcision could have played no part in bringing about his righteousness. So why is this so important for Paul's argument? As a symbol of Israel's special covenant relationship with God, circumcision was the chief outward mark of being a Jew. In fact, uh, if someone was not ethnically a Jew but became circumcised, they could be considered a Jew in the Old Testament. And any ethnic Jew who was not circumcised, Genesis 17:14, had to be cut off from Israel as a covenant breaker. So circumcision was not only the sign of being a Jew, but in a sense, circumcision was the way someone became a Jew, at least for a male. Circumcision was so central to the Jewish identity that Jews were referred to as the circumcision. And some came to view circumcision itself as somehow guaranteeing their position before God. One rabbi famously wrote, no person who is circumcised will go to hell. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Pretty confident for the men, right? We, we know that circumcision has nothing, however, to do with righteousness. How? Well, we know this because Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, was counted righteous before he was circumcised. We might say that he was counted righteous before he was a Jew. Now, I want, this is Paul's argument, not mine. Follow what Paul is teaching us here. The chronology of events in Genesis is clear. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It is not until later in Genesis 17 that Abraham was circumcised. Circumcision came after being counted righteous. Thus, it was not necessary for righteousness. And if circumcision is not necessary for being credited with righteousness, then one need not be a Jew to become righteous. More than that, one need not even be a Jew to be Abraham's children. Abraham is the father of all who believe. Anyone could have righteousness credited to them in the exact same way that Abraham did, by faith. What Abraham did prior to being circumcised was intended to be a model for all those who would come after him. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. This is, this is very important for our understanding of who we are even as believers. Abraham God, God had a purpose in this, right? It says that the purpose for this was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So this was to make Abraham the father of all who are not ethnic Jews. Abraham is the patriarch of Israel, the father of the Jewish people. And, and this is commonly understood. But God's purpose in declaring Abraham righteous by faith before he was circumcised was so that Abraham could be regarded as the first Gentile convert, and thus the father also of all Gentiles who follow in his faith. You see, when Abraham was called, 
technically, he was neither an Israelite nor a Jew, but the father of them. Abraham was the first Gentile convert. But there's a second reason for this important chronology, verse 12. And so this, the first purpose in this was so that we could see that Abraham was not the father of the Jews only, but the father also of Gentiles who would follow him by faith. That that is that the promises that came to Abraham, and this is, this is important, the promises that came to Abraham are not promises to Jews only, but also to Gentiles who follow in his footsteps of faith where he is their spiritual father. So that's the first purpose. And, verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Remember Jesus telling his Jewish opponents that Abraham was not their father? Their father was the devil, which is the meanest thing I think anyone has ever said to anyone, and it was Jesus. I love it. Their father was not Abraham. Their father was the devil. Another purpose God had in causing Abraham to be made righteous by faith was to save those who were circumcised. So first he did this to save Gentiles, to make Abraham the father of Gentiles, and, he, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Some of the Jews in Paul's day needed to understand that not only could Gentiles become children of Abraham by faith, but they themselves could only be Abraham's children if they walked in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. With Jesus, Paul teaches that Abraham is only the father of Jews who have faith. Their ethnicity and having Abraham as their physical ancestor would not help Jews at all if they did not follow Abraham's example and did not put their faith in what God had promised. They had to put their faith in God's promised Messiah, Jesus. Remember, we talked about how Old Testament saints are saved and how New Testament saints are saved in the exact same way. Old Testament saints could only be saved by putting their trust in God's Messiah, a Redeemer that He would send. How then could anyone say that today in the New Testament age, someone would be saved by some other means? There's only one way to salvation, one way to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. All of us must recognize that there is absolutely nothing you could do to earn your salvation and be made righteous before God. This not only puts Jews and Gentiles in the same boat and solves the problem of conflict in the church, that there didn't have to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Do you know what they called Messianic Jews in, in the first century? Christians. And you know what they called Gentile converts in the first century? Christians, right? They, there was one church in Christ, not two separated by ethnicity, separated by culture, all were brought into one church. So not only did it solve that, but it also, it didn't just put Jews and Gentiles in the same boat, but it also forces us to see ourselves as no more deserving of God's grace than all those ungodly people around us with the sins and lifestyles we find the most offensive. God is in the business of justifying the ungodly, because no one is righteous, no, not one. Jesus said, Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and confess ourselves as sinners. This is the one requirement for those who are to call themselves Christians. We cannot both call ourselves Christians and fail to call ourselves sinners. Because you died for sinners, you are saving sinners. You are rescuing the ungodly. Lord, I pray that you would cause this word that maybe we have heard a million times before to be pressed deep down into our bones. That we would know the gracious gift of your love for us while we were entirely undeserving. In fact, we had earned a lot to the opposite. We deserved your utter wrath, condemnation, and damnation. But in your great mercy and the plan that you set into place before the foundations of the world, you chose a people to save for yourself through Christ Jesus. Now, if we know our need and we know our gift, God, help us to celebrate. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Cause us to rejoice in you and in your goodness, pointing to you. And when we go from here, God, I pray that this would be on our tongues and on our lips, that this would be what we're excited about, this gospel, this good news, that we would not look now and and consider ourselves so much higher than those around us, but we would see the ungodliness around us and have your attitude of mercy and grace praying that you would draw all who you have called to yourself and activating ourselves in this gospel to go then and share with others that they too might receive this undeserved goodness you have shown to us. Father, I pray that you would not let us finish Romans without utterly transforming us in this way. We ask you this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.